Thank you for being amazing. You know, Mother's Day is a, is a day to celebrate women. Amen? All right. Good to see you this morning. We are going to take a detour from our series on Moses. And I thought I would uh, bring kind of a message, kind of package something for everyone, but really highlighting God's heart, God's passion and his forgiveness towards women. And so uh, applies to everyone, but we're gonna look at a story in Luke chapter seven. I wanna encourage you to pull out your notes and uh, follow along, open your Bibles, pull out your notes, and let's dig into the word this morning. You know, people, I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this, but people sometimes say, you know, the Bible is uh, sexist, right? Actually, the Bible is radically pro-women. There are so many commands in the Bible to honor men, I mean to honor women. But the problem is men sometimes don't honor women. That's the reality. And if you go back to the book of Genesis, literally Genesis means the beginnings, right? So from the very beginning, it says that, you know, God um, created man in his image, placed him in this paradise, this perfect utopia, and, and there was animals, and you see God's beautiful creation. And then Adam's looking around, and he realizes that he's all alone. He doesn't have someone, you know, a partner like, uh, like the animals do. And, and so the Bible says that God made woman out of man. That means that women were God's idea. That means the world wasn't complete without women. Can I get an amen on that, ladies, right? I mean, we, we, a lot of people think it's a man's world, right? And it's all about men. Listen, God, from God's vantage point, he said, I'm not done. This is not complete, right? I got to finish the deal. I got to create woman. And so Adam was given. It was this perfect gift given by God. Uh, he was given a partner, a companion, a friend, a lover. And so it's a beautiful story. And we know that really it was, it was God who brought the first bride, walked her down this aisle in paradise and brought her to Adam. It, it, marriage is God's idea. Sex is God's idea. Gender is God's idea. Everything is connected to God in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's what I want you to see this morning. We're going to look at Luke 7. It's a story that really shows us Jesus' amazing heart for this woman, but it really shows his heart for the brokenness and the lostness of humanity. And so uh, grab your Bible and, and turn to Luke 7. Pull out your notes. Let's look at it together. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 36. That's when the story begins, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 50. Are you guys ready? All right, here we go. Let's dig into it together. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this woman were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, and he answered, say it, teacher. So then Jesus begins to tell a parable, an earthly story 
that hammers home a spiritual point. Here's the story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The gospel writer Luke, he is, uh, he's a doctor. He's a Gentile. And he was funded by Theophilus to do an investigation about who this person was, who Jesus was. And so he went about and he investigated the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so he interviewed people, people that were eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles. They heard his sermons. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But then he also talked to people and they shared stories, oral traditions were, per, were passed down. And so Luke gives us this account this historical narrative about the life of Christ. Now, if you look at the context, Luke 7, Jesus has just testified about John the Baptist. And the Pharisees rejected his baptism and the purpose of God for their lives. So here's what they started doing. The religious elite, they started accusing Jesus of being a glutton, you know, being a drunk. They blasted him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 7 that there's a Pharisee, one of these religious dudes by the name of Simon, who invited Jesus to his house. He invited him to his Pharisaical pad, and he wanted to have dinner with Jesus. Now, we don't know why he wanted to throw Jesus a dinner party. Maybe he was like Nicodemus. Maybe there was an openness, a spiritual curiosity about Jesus. Or maybe he had ulterior motives. Maybe he wanted to get Jesus connected to his other pharisaical buddies and have a dinner with Jesus so they can trap him. They can twist him in his words. They can interrogate him. They can find additional material to use against him. And you know what Jesus does? He gets this invitation, maybe text, email, I don't know. He gets this invitation. Hey, won't you come over and have dinner with us? What does Jesus do? Jesus replies, yes. Here's what Jesus is telling us right here in this passage, that Jesus is not afraid to rub shoulders with lost people. Jesus is not afraid to get, to invest his life in the messiness of other people. As believers, sometimes, you know, we get saved. Remember the, remember the moment you got saved? I mean, can you, you go back to that moment? 
you know, the fire of God fell, man. Your heart was on fire for God. I mean, you were just passionately living for him and you were telling everyone about Jesus, right? And then sometimes over time, some believers, the, the, the flame begins to die out. The passion begins to just kind of drift and you just begin to kind of go through the motions. No longer is there this desire to see lost people come to faith in Christ. It becomes about your Christian bubble. You know, like Christian education, Christian home, Christian church, Christian friends. Listen, Jesus rubbed shoulders with lost people. So should we. He engaged lost people, you know? I just, you know, took a trip the other day with a guy in our church. You know, he made a comment. I thought, man, that's really good. And, you know, he said, listen, Jesus, you know, he, um, he, he engaged sinners, but he didn't partake in their sin. As believers, we, we've got to be about investing our lives in lost people. If you're not investing your life in lost people, you're not doing the Great Commission you're not obeying Jesus' final words. Jesus, his heart, it, 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 it beaded for the loss. He had a huge heart for lost people. So what does he do? He accepts the offer. Now in Jewish culture, you have to understand the dining experience was unlike our experience. So the table was really low. No one sat in chairs, you know, maybe a, a foot, maybe a foot, foot or two off the ground. There was kind of pillows, you know, spread around the table. And, and then people would kind of sprawl out, kind of relax. Anybody getting into the Mother's Day theme here? Maybe go home, relax, sprawl out, serve your mom, serve your wife today, right? And so what did they do? They sprawled out, they relaxed, they, they were enjoying the food. In, in that experience, Jewish culture, it was about intimacy Fellowship, conversation. It wasn't about being hurried or rushed, right? Hey, we got to eat this food because we got to get to the ball field. Oh, we got to eat this food because we got a to-do list, right? It was, no, it was about the experience. They took time out, and if you shared a meal with someone else, that meant that there was like friendship, there was something intimate there. Now, I want us to go back, and what we're going to do is we're going to start walking through the story several verses at a time. Look at Verse 37, 38. And behold, circle the word behold. That's interesting. That's a literary device. Luke is trying to kind of point us, kind of show us something with that word behold. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that, that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Luke tells us, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Her reputation precedes her. It's almost like Luke is saying, not only does Simon know this woman, the whole town, the whole village, the whole surrounding region, they know who this woman is. They know that she's broken that she has lived a dark life, that she, her past is riddled with sin, and presently she is so far away from God. Most likely, based on our understanding, most likely she's a prostitute. See, she's a professional adulteress. She's a woman of the streets. That's why it says, right, a woman of the city. But somehow, she has learned about Jesus' whereabouts. And I don't know how she found out. I mean, 
Was she on maybe the, the peripheral edge of Jesus performing a miracle? And she's, she's like, I gotta get some of that. I gotta get closer to him. I gotta, I gotta know more about this man. Well, you know, I've heard about this coming Messiah. Maybe this is it. Maybe she was an eyewitness to a miracle, you know, or maybe a sermon, or maybe someone in the family told her about him. We, we, we don't have the details of that. But we do know that somehow she got the 411 and she got the address of where he lived. She was intentional about finding Jesus. And she, she figures out this is where Jesus is at. He's at, you know, this Pharisee's house. They're having a dinner party. So um, the story doesn't give us all the details, but it doesn't say she came to the door and she knocked. She came right into the house. I mean, right in the middle of the conversation, she interrupted the dinner party. She interrupts the conversation that Jesus is having with these religious, zealot, holy men. She's the only woman in the room. Technically, she's not even supposed to be there. Women in Jewish culture were like one or two grades above cattle. That's how they were treated. There was, there was, there was no... Um, value that women had, that women carried. They couldn't even vote. They were treated just like property. So here's this woman in the room with all the religious people. She's the only woman and the only one uninvited. She didn't get a dinner invitation, but she showed up. You think she's a little nervous? I would think so. She has barged into the house of a religious man religious men having a conversation with Jesus and, and, and um, she knows that they know who she is. She's a prostitute. I want you to understand that. I want you to feel that a little bit this morning. Can you imagine what her life must have been like? She experienced, she heard the put downs. She heard all the snide remarks. She was hit with rudeness. She experienced the sting of rejection, the avoidance of others, the mocking, belittling, ridicule of the religious elite, she knows her sin, she knows her past, she knows her guilt, and she knows her shame. She knows who she is. She brings an alabaster flask of ointment, probably this costly perfume that she probably wears around her neck, and some theologians believe that it was actually a tool of the trade. It was actually something that she used to allure and attract men with it. This very costly, probably just amazing fragrance of perfume. So she brings this flask of ointment. She comes into the room, she stands behind Jesus at his feet. And in this moment, something happened that I don't think she was anticipating. In this moment, I think she is overcome with an awareness of her sinfulness. The Bible says that she begins to weep bitterly. Luke says she began to wet his feet with her tears. The word wet in Greek literally means to rain. She is raining down tears. This is not just like a, a one teardrop coming down the cheek. She is sobbing. She is weeping. She is raining down to, they're flooding down her face onto Jesus' feet. I love what Martin Luther, the great reformer, he calls these tears heart water because they came from her heart. 
She's publicly acknowledging before the most judgmental, shaming, condemning self-righteous religious men, I am a sinful woman. I'm a woman that is broken and I need to be made whole. And so her repentance, her tears of repentance fall hard on his feet, so much so that she begins to wipe them with the hair of her head. Now, she let her hair down. Now, like, that doesn't mean much today, right? Because women let their hair down all the time. But in Jewish culture, that was like taboo. You didn't do that. Like, you didn't let your hair down in front of other men. Uh, Talmud, the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary, they say that if a woman let her hair down in the midst of someone who was not her husband, it was grounds for a divorce. Not only did they see it as grounds for divorce, they saw it akin to a woman taking her shirt off, letting her hair down. Ladies, anybody excited that that's not the rule today, right? You can let your hair down, right? It's all good. Let your hair down, right? She washes his his grimy feet with her hair. We're gonna talk about this in a moment, but remember how Jesus told Simon? <laughs> he said, you gave me no greeting. You didn't, you didn't, you, did, you gave me no water for my feet, right? It was customary of that day for a servant or someone to wash the feet of guests who were coming into your home. And Jesus is like, Simon, you haven't done any of that. You showed no hospitality, no kindness, you didn't greet me. You didn't give me a. You, you didn't even give me a, a wash basin and a, and a cloth, so I can like be cleaned up before like dinner, before the meal. But this woman has been wetting my feet with tears of worship. She is so broken, She's wrecked by sin. Her past is riddled with unbelievable hurt and pain. And this leads us to point number one. Jot this down. No matter what you've done or who you've become, God's grace is sufficient. Isn't that good to know? That's good to know. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you've done, God's grace is enough. Doesn't matter what sin you've ever committed, right? God's love is deeper and longer and higher and richer, right? Stack up your sins and God's grace stacks up higher. God's grace forgives and, and does an amazing work in our life. You know, if we were honest this morning, many of us would say there have been wasted years of, of life. We've made poor choices in life. And you know what God does? God answers the mess of your life with one word, grace. That's what he does, right? And sometimes we think grace is something to be like understood. Yes, I would agree. But grace goes beyond you understanding it. Grace is something that should be experienced. God wants you to experience his grace in your life. How do you experience the grace of God? How do you experience something that is undeserved and unearned? Well, the Bible says that salvation is a gift. You receive God's gift by faith. You choose to trust Christ. And when you do that, his grace floods into your life and it changes you. The grace that saves you will sustain you in your life. And so God's grace is about pursuing and forgiving and changing. Um, the wasted years are not wasted. God never wastes your pain. Your pain that you've experienced in your life has a purpose to it. 
And God can use that pain for his purpose in your life and in the lives of other people. Now, how does Jesus react to this woman? He reacts with love and acceptance. You know, Jesus is not put off by her. He doesn't, like, refuse her touch. You know, I'll be honest with you. You know, like, if it was me in this situation, I'd be like, hey, hey, time out, right? I need personal space, right? You know, like, he wasn't like that. He invited her in. He's not embarrassed. He's surrounded by these, these spiritual religious dudes. He's not afraid of what they're thinking. He doesn't even sit in judgment of her. He allows her to give him a gift, this costly perfume, so that he can give her a better gift. He invites her in to his presence. He invites her into, into his space. And he says, oh, oh you're, you're gonna give me the, this flask of ointment? I've got something better to give you. And we know that he gives her the forgiveness of sins and he gives her um, this new lease on life, this new beginning that can only be found in Christ. He sees her desperation. He sees her brokenness. He sees all of that and he's unmoved by it. See, sometimes we think, I'm too messy, I'm too broken. There's no way God could forgive me. There's no way that God could love me. I've just made a mess of my life. Listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care how dark your past is, Christ has forgiven you, done. Once and for all sacrifice, your sin nailed to the cross, forever removed, plunged into the depths of the ocean. He takes your, skin, your sin and he, and he throws it into the universe as far as the east meets the west, which by the way, there's never a moment where the east meets the west, which means he chooses to remember your sin no more by casting it far away from him. He plunges it into the ocean. He chooses not to remember. Now, we choose to remember. We choose to kind of replay those moments, those wasted years in our lives, but God doesn't do that. God can forgive you. God has forgiven you. And so don't carry the weight of shame and guilt your whole life. Drop that shame and that guilt at the foot of the cross because Jesus is big enough to take that shame. He's big enough to take that guilt. He's big enough to take all that condemnation. Look at verse 39. He says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, can, 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 you, just, can you just hear this guy say this? He's, like, he's whispering to himself. He's not, like, he's, not a, he's not a big enough boy to tell Jesus directly. He's kind of a wimpy guy, right? He, he says to himself, he's muttering underneath his mouth, right? Well, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him for she is a sinner, right? I mean, can you picture it? I mean, I'm picturing it to myself. He doesn't want Jesus to hear this. He doesn't say it out loud. Now, when you come to the story, there's two characters. There's Simon, the Pharisee, and then there is this woman who's a sinner, one is righteous, one is not. One appears holy, one definitely doesn't appear holy. Here's point number two. Who are you in the story? So you have to pick one. You know, I mean, the, the, Jesus is setting up this story. He's getting ready to set it up with, this, with, the, with the story, right? You have to pick one. There, there's two camps, right? 
the religious guy, he's cold, he's casual, he's indifferent to Jesus. He sees himself as holy. He has this spiritual smugness about him. He's, he's like this self-righteous guy. And he looks at the woman and he kind of like looks down at her like, oh, she's unholy. She's like prostitute. She's broken. She needs a lot of help. But me? No, not me. He's got this holier than thou attitude. And he, and he questions Jesus. You know, if you really were a prophet, you would know this lady. You, you, well, we know this lady. You, you surely should know this lady. She's, she's running the streets. She's running amok. Everyone knows this lady. Simon comes to Jesus with his head. He has these intellectual questions. The woman, on the other hand, she doesn't come to Jesus with her head because if she did, she wouldn't have come to Jesus. She wouldn't have gone to the Pharisee's house for fear of being um, maybe killed, right? Or thrown out the house. Um, This woman comes to Jesus with her heart. He comes to Jesus. She comes to Jesus with her whole being with the core of who she is. She comes with tears and tender affection and she, she surrenders her life to Jesus. Here's the astonishing thing. Both are curious, both see him, both hear him, but only one is changed. Only one's heart is transformed. And so you have to pick. And this is my challenge today. Are you religious? Are you just playing church? jumping through the hoops, or do you really know Jesus? Because listen, if you know Christ, then your life should be different because Christ does a transforming work in our lives. Here's point number three, jot this down. What is the difference between Christianity and religion as portrayed in the story? As portrayed in the story, you know, religion emphasizes morality, performance, work-based salvation, Christianity is more like all-in mentality, right? All-in commitment. It's, it's giving your whole self total body discipleship to Jesus, right? You remember the, fla- the flask that she had brought to Jesus? Most likely this flask was made out of expensive marble. And, and her flask probably contained very costly perfume. Some people think that she maybe wore it around her neck. It was probably the most valuable thing that she owned. And what did she do? She brings it to Jesus and she pours it out as an act of worship on his feet. Is Jesus the most prized possession, the treasure of your life? She was willing to break a flask to demonstrate worship to Jesus. That was like, her identity, right? That was this woman's identity. And so she brings the flask in exchange for a virgin heart. And only Jesus was able to give her this new heart and he changed her from the inside out. What flask do you need to give to Jesus? What flask do you need to offer to Jesus as an act of worship to him? And that flask could be a lot of things. It could be security, it could be your significance, popularity, money, comfort, pleasure, success. One thing that I see in the story is that she came to Jesus not to get, but to give. She came to give Christ something that cost her everything. 
It was her identity. It was probably the most prized possession in her life. It was probably the most valuable thing she owned, but she was willing to give it. And see, that's what worship is. That's what it means to worship Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We're willing to give. You see, when Christ comes into your life, you don't own your life anymore. He owns your life. See, sometimes we think, oh, you know, I want Jesus as my savior. That's good, right? That's Bible. That's gospel. We need to be saved from our sin. We need to be saved from, our, from ourselves. We need to be saved from hell. But you know what? He's not just Savior. He's got to be Lord too. Jesus, the call of discipleship is to surrender and say, Jesus, you are Lord. What does that mean for Christ to be Lord? It means that he is the CEO of your life. He calls the shots. He has the final trump card. He's master. He's sovereign one. So when, when Christ tells us in his word, hey, listen, okay, this, this is what it means to follow me. That's what we do. Because he is not just the savior of, of my soul. He's the Lord of my life. Jesus proceeds to tell Simon this parable, which really is a short story that really drives home a, a heavenly point. And, and the point is undeniable. Look at it with me, um, beginning in verse 40 to 43. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So in the story, there's a moneylender and there's two debtors. One guy owes 500 denarii. Now a denarii is a is um, the value of like a common laborer for one day. So 500 days of wages, this guy owes. And then there's another guy, he owes 50 days wages of a common laborer. The story, Jesus tells us, neither one can repay their debt. They, ain't, they don't got the money, they don't got the job, they don't have like the, the family that can bail them out. So what happens? The debts, both of the debts get canceled out. Jesus says, hey, Simon, which guy is more excited about the forgiven debt? And Simon says, the dude with the extra zero. The guy who had the 500 debt is gonna be more excited about his debt being canceled than the person with 50. And Jesus said, exactly. Bingo, Simon, you nailed it. In the parable, Jesus is the moneylender. Simon and the prostitute are the debtors. Now check this out. Simon owes 50. And Simon knows that he's, Simon knows he's the guy that owes the 50 debt. The woman owes 500. So from an external outward perspective, the woman appears to be 10 times more sinful than this Pharisee. But the reality, based on the story, based on the parable, check this out. They're both equally guilty. You say, I'm not, I'm not a prostitute. I haven't killed someone. You know, I've, I've, I've lived a pretty good, like, moral life. 
I haven't committed adultery. I mean, there's a long list of sins I just haven't done. Well, guess what? If you have transgressed the law, which is revealed by God in the Old Testament, then you stand condemned. You stand guilty. And this is what Jesus is unpacking for us. Jesus is making it so crystal clear. It doesn't matter if your life is squeaky clean. If your life is this just beautiful present and it's just like ribbon and it's beautiful bow and it just looks presentable and looks great. Or if your life is just a hot mess of prostitution and walking the dark streets, Jesus is like, both of you are guilty before the eyes of God. We don't see it that way often. I'm going to park here for a real quick sec because I'm going to chase that a little bit. Why do we not see that? Why do we not see that? I mean, why, why is it our, our, our first inclination in our heart, let's be honest, is to be like, like put yourself in the story. If I'm Simon, I'm thinking I'm better than her. I've done less stuff than her, right? I, I think God will accept me better than God will accept her. And you couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus is so emphatically clear when he says, what did he say in the story? They couldn't pay the debt, so the debts got canceled. Point four, every person owes God a massively huge debt. We're debtors. Because of our sin, we owe God a, a debt, right? Anybody have any debt in their life? No hands are going to go up, but there's debt everywhere, right? I mean, if you got a house, you got a car, you got a credit card, right? Right? I mean, there's or you, you owe mom and dad money, right? I mean, there's people, people got debt, right? And you know what the pro, proverb says? The borrower is slave to the lender. If you borrow money for something, guess what? There's an obligation, a, a Christian ethic duty to pay that person back, right? Your witness is on the line. It's a master-slave relationship when you owe someone money. Like if you owe family members money, Christmas dinner kind of tastes different, Right? Because you owe them money, right? Like we understand the concept of debt. We live in a country that has just like amassed like I don't know how many trillions of dollars of debt. I mean, if someone came to you and they just paid off all your debt. Yeah, that's right. There's two of you that are excited about it. Everyone else is like, I don't don't care less, you know. I mean, can you imagine if all your debt was paid off? Come on now. But there's a greater debt that's been paid. That's the spiritual debt. The debt that you owe God that is accruing every day. You owe God this debt and you cannot pay for the debt. Like the story says, the debt had to be canceled. Jesus canceled the debt. Right? Here's point five. The debt we owe God was transferred to Jesus. I want you to think about, think about this for a moment. You can't forgive debt. I mean, you can look at like a, a statement or something, you owe someone money, I forgive that debt, I forgive that debt. That, no, that doesn't work. You ultimately have to eat the debt yourself. Like if a bank gives you a loan for a house or a car or whatever, you default on that loan, what happens? Bank's coming after you. They're gonna take your house, they're gonna take your car because the bank doesn't forgive the debt the bank is going to eat it themselves. Here's the spiritual point. Jesus said, I'm gonna eat 
your debt, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat it. I'm gonna eat it myself. I'm gonna be cursed on the tree. I'm gonna be that perfect spotless lamb of God. I'm gonna be that perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Amen, for that word once, one time. Not two, not three, one time, church family. The righteous for the unrighteous. Who's righteous? Who's righteous? Who's unrighteous? We are. Jesus the righteous died for us who are unrighteous so that he might what? Bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. What does that mean? He paid your debt in full on the cross once and for all. So application, if you're holding on, if you're holding on to guilt, condemnation, if you're holding on to wasted years, poor choices, you have got to give that to Christ. Jesus doesn't want you to carry that. You don't have to carry that. On on this Mother's Day, there's something that you've been harboring, that you've been, that you've been revisiting Give it to Jesus. Peter tells us in one of his epistles that we can cast all of our burdens, right? We can cast all of our burdens and um, our anxiety on him because he cares for us. What that literally means is God saying, I can shoulder I can shoulder your burdens. I can shoulder everything you throw at me. And I can shoulder all of it because I I care for you. That's how much I love you. Look at verses 44 to 47. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You know, Simon is perhaps off to the side, and this woman is weeping near Jesus, and she still hasn't said a word. Have you noticed that? Not one single word. The religious people are in shock. Jesus says, hey, Simon, do do you see this woman? And then he proceeds to give Simon a highlight reel of all of her acts of worship. Hey, Simon, you didn't, she did. You didn't, she did. You didn't, she did. Like, hey, Simon, you didn't serve me, but she served me with tears of worship. Hey, Simon, like, you didn't greet me, but she greeted me with tender affection. And she poured out something that was so valuable in in an act of worship towards me. 48 to 50, look at it with me. And he said to her, your sins are many, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I want you to picture this for a moment. They're debating, they're talking amongst themselves, they're chattering, right? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Like, who even forgives sins? You know what's so tragic about the story? Instead of celebrating, instead of celebrating this, this woman who has lived such a hard, rough life, 
They're criticizing how Jesus, how Jesus has um, engaged with her and how he's invited her into his presence and he's, he's literally embraced her, her past, her life, and he just lavishes her with grace and forgiveness. He, you know, he, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me say this. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can forgive you of all your sin. And only Jesus can give you a new heart like he did for her that day. And so on this Mother's Day, maybe you need to give your heart to Jesus. I I hope you today have seen the big, massive, glorious, wonderful heart of God and how God loves us sinners so much. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't cast us aside. He doesn't kick us to the curb. He invites us in. He welcomes us home. And he forgives us in spite of our past. And he does a work, a transforming work that only he can do by his spirit in our lives. So today, maybe you need to come to Christ and take that flask of ointment, whatever that thing, that identity of yours, and you need to break that at the feet of Jesus in an act of worship and surrender all to him. Let's pray.